If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and it is two weeks before Halloween. And I know this because we have a giant bowl of candy here at the house that is disappearing rapidly. I live in this strange corner of New Hampshire where there's this sort of tiny group of farmers who love to grow giant pumpkins. The one in the picture I sent you from, from Milford is like 2,400 pounds. They brought it in on a flatbed truck. I've never seen anything like that before. And those are naturally grown? Are they like souped up with, you know, some kind of synthetic hormones or something? No, to hear them, it's it's all about you crossbreed pumpkins. It's very Gregor Mendel, all right? Lots of working with seeds and that sort of thing. And they trade them back and forth like they're nuclear secrets. And the weirdest thing is as the season ends, well, what do you do with a giant pumpkin? And, and what you do is you hollow it out and... Rather than have Cinderella ride around inside of it, what they do is take these out in the town of Gostown, they throw them in the Piscataway River, and they actually have a boat race. It's, it's called the Pumpkin Regatta. As I sent Drew in the pictures, there were six of them on the river yesterday when Nancy and Alice and I went out, and the one that won was somebody dressed as Harry Potter inside one that was painted gold. So, in effect, it was Harry Potter riding inside of a giant snitch. And Did we just get the scoop onto what the new coaster is going to be? I think so. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Why isn't somebody taking this idea and handing it to Universal? But anyway, we're, we're not here to talk about pumpkins or Universal. That's another podcast. We're here to talk animation news. And the big animation news for the tail end of this week had very much to do with that teaser trailer for the live-action Aladdin, the Guy Ritchie movie that Disney's putting out next year. And... What was your take on that? It was fine. I mean, it was a- a- about as teasery as teasers get. Mm-hmm. I- it's sort of interesting to see how they market these movies because it's not like there are any, like they're these are so close to the originals. It's not like mm-hmm. there's any surprise that they're saving. We know there's a genie. We know what the songs are going to be. So mm-hmm. it, was a- it was kind of strange that he didn't show more of that. Maybe it's just the effects are just not done, but I thought it was weird how coy they were really playing this. What about you? Whenever one of these teasers show up, I get in Zapruder mode. Just sort of like, okay, is that Iago? Is that what I'm looking at here? How, <laughs> yeah. how does the palace look in the distance? And what's the deal with the Cave of Wonders? I mean, yeah, it's it's always sort of compare and contrast because that for me is is always what's intriguing about these live action remakes of Disney films. What they stay true to and how they depart, what art- artistic choices they make. So I will tell you somebody who wasn't necessarily all that happy with the trailer, and and that was Terry Ruscio, who co-wrote the screenplay for the original animated Aladdin back in the 1990s with his longtime writing partner, Ted Elliott, as well as Ron Clements and John Musker. Now, did you see these tweets that Terry put out? Yeah. They were kind of weird, but... The original one he put out basically says, So strange that literally the first word spoken in the new Aladdin trailer happened to be a rhyme that my writing partner and I wrote and that Disney offered zero compensation to us or any of the screenwriters on these live-action remakes 
Not even a t-shirt or a pass to the park, which makes Terry sound bitter. But the interesting thing is, as this Twitter feed went on, Russo was right up front about the fact, look, the studio owns the content of an animated film. When these films were made, no one foresaw a live-action remake, so nothing was contracted. And he did point out that, I guess, Disney has been approached many times for some kind of compensation fee, and they have answered, no, zilch, nada. What's so funny is, too, is he keeps hammering away about wanting a Disney pass to the parks. Yeah, yeah. Which is In like, fact, you can't afford that. That I mean, you, you know, you wrote Shrek and Pirates of the Caribbean, and you can't afford a Disney park pass? In this feed, he does mention that he did have, at one time, a lifetime pass to the parks, and... Right about the time that they opened Shanghai Disneyland, which of course has an entire land dedicated to the version of Pirates of the Caribbean that he and Ted wrote, they took the pass away. <laughs> he does stress that, look, Disney paid its contracted fees, there's nothing illegal about the studio's actions, they own the right to the work that they purchased, and they can do with that work as they wish. And for him... It's a, a lack of recognition. Right. He also points out that the Writers Guild is attempting to address this issue now. That I guess there's something on the table about animated features going forward. But the problem is that, to date, what's been suggested hasn't been folded into contracts. Yeah, I did like what he said, too, about like how story artists are also not being compensated. And that apparently the WGA and the Writers Guild for Animated Work are two different entities and that the WGA kind of has a little bit more clout so that that people that contributed to the story or screenplay via story ideas, storyboards, etc. are very rarely, if ever, uh, acknowledged and compensated. If you look at a movie like any of the Lord of the Rings movies or The Hobbit or for that matter, Transformers, with as much screen time as there is where there's a CG character on screen... There are some of these movies that have more animation in them. If you tote up the number of uh, amount of footage featuring animated characters, it's some full-length animated features. I mean, yeah, the whole notion of the designation of that's a live-action film. It's like, no, that's really an animated film that every so often a live-action actor steps in front of a <laughs> green screen and goes, Optimus Prime, <laughs> will you help me? <laughs> and I get why the studios are dragging their feet because they want to keep all the money for themselves. Yeah. Here's Aladdin coming out next May. Meanwhile, Disney, of course, is looking to continue this very lucrative series of, of live-action reimaginings of previously animated projects. And so, what was it? Just last week, there was... Well, you and I have talked about this. You know, yeah. The, the, the We've known that Stitch this was project. coming for a while, yeah. Yeah. In fact, yeah. you know, how long ago did you hear that this was, was one of the ideas bubbling up. Oh, months and months ago. I mean, I did... When did Beauty and the Beast come out? Last year? Mm-hmm. I did a yeah. big story with, um, with Sean Bailey, who's the head of Disney That's Pictures. Right. That's um, right. For Vulture. And, mm -hmm. you know, what was interesting about that was that he said basically that there wouldn't be any remakes of things after the year 2000. Mm -hmm. Because that's the sweet spot they were hitting... The people that grew up with these movies who now have purchasing power and families of their own now. But right around that same time, you and I started hearing about, oh, they're working on Lilo and Stitch, mm -hmm. which I think makes a lot of sense because unlike some of those other properties, it's more human-based than animated. Like, oh, you'll have characters, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, the, the nucleus of the family is all human, and it makes perfect sense, but... 
it's it's very interesting sort of what the official line has been given this no i i agree and, and but but what what kind of cracks me up is that it's the same week that this news breaks you send me that absolutely horrifying photo that was taken inside of Stitch's Great Escape, which I guess <laughs> finally officially closed in January of this year after... Limping along. Yeah, yeah, it went seasonal in, in 2000, uh, the fall of 2016. And October of last year, they turned it into what Stitch's Alien Encounter, where literally you walked inside and it was the lobby and they had the walk-around character of Stitch there. Oh, you went into the building and it was just... Empty. It was just him. It, well, again, you're in the lobby, there's Stitch, you get your photo taken, and you're, you're back outside again. But I have been fascinated since 2004. Disney theme park fans have had a stick up there, you know where, for, for <laughs> since the thing opened. And I, I think this is largely because of, of the PR stunt that they did for the, the grand opening. I mean, do you remember seeing the photographs of the castle? I do I, remember seeing that, yeah. You can go on Google right now, folks, and, and see these. But for opening day, they basically toilet papered Cinderella Castle. What did they write on one of the turrets? What, what Stitches oh, King? Stitches King, yeah. There we go. One day, the castle looked like this. I mean, we're not talking about the the Pipto-Bismol pink birthday castle for the, the 25th anniversary. The 15 months, it looked like that. But one day, it looks like this. And and yes, there's, there was that effect in the attraction where... Stitch supposedly burped in your face, and it was what the chili dog smell. Yeah, chili dog. Yeah, I've actually yeah. never been on the attraction. Well, that and you, you based and on I that. Never will. Based on that animatronic figure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, you're not getting on this thing. From the theme park fan point of view, from the day this thing opened, they were shut this thing down. It doesn't belong in Tomorrowland, and blah, 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 blah. and on the other side of the fence, when you look at how. The company reacted to when, when Lilo and Stitch went out in theaters in June of 2002 and made all that money. I mean, they they went all in on the franchise in the very next year. There was Stitch the movie and August of 2003. And then right behind that came Lilo and Stitch the series. It debuted, I want to say, the very next month on ABC and, and was such a big hit that Disney turned around and immediately repurposed it so the, the very same episodes that were airing as part of ABC Saturday Morning's lineup began running on the Disney Channel. And 65 episodes produced. They take the final couple of episodes from the series finale in June of 2006. And this was kind of unheard of at the time, but I guess what? They air June 23rd, 2006 on the Disney Channel. And four days later, it's on sale in stores as a DVD and VHS. I had no idea that was the finale of the show. I had never, I had, I was working at a video store at the time mm. and had no idea what that was. But that was the thing. They were bumping out Lilo and Stitch. And in between there, there was a, an, an actual, uh, what, home premiere. The, the Lilo and Stitch 2, Stitch is a Glitch. That was out in 2005. I mean, it's doing so well overseas that um, have you ever seen any of the anime version of the show? Yeah, I've looked it up. It looks so cool. The animation is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's really crazy that there were animated series and all the stuff going on at the same time. 65 episodes of the stateside version, but overseas, there's over 100 of these things. There's a, 
The show, the, the anime version, debuts October of 2008 on, on Japanese television. First season is 25 episodes in a standalone TV series. Then, I guess, there was a second series, which, which had a, a slightly different title. It was Stitch, the Mischievous Aliens Great Adventure. That runs from 2009 to 2010, an additional 29 episodes and another standalone TV special. Then there's a third iteration of the show, Stitch, Best Friends Forever. Another 29 episodes, another standalone TV series. And, and then to keep the thing going, there's a, another TV special, Stitch in the Planet of Sand, that runs in June of 2012. And Stitches, uh, Stitch, the per uh, Perfect Memory, that runs in August of 2015. And the thing is that Tokyo Disneyland looks at this and is like, oh, we got to get in on this. So we end up with Enchanted Tiki Room under new management, which, which I'm probably one of five people on the planet who actually liked that show. <laughs> if only for the yes, Hall of Presidents. Yeah, that's true, yeah. But on the other hand, they get their version of uh, Enchanted Tiki Room gets retooled to what the Stitch Presents, the Aloha Kamehameha show. That drops in July of 2008 and has been playing the standalone crowds ever since. I think you were all the one who was also telling me about it wasn't enough just to have Stitch and Lilo walk around the park. They created for the Japanese parks Angel. Oh, they, yeah, the Japanese love Angel, who's Stitch's girlfriend from the sequels. And I guess she's in the Japanese versions, too? Because, I mean, how would they know who she was otherwise? I got no clue. I mean, this aspect of Tokyo Disneyland always fascinates me. I mean, it's, it's like, for example... Clarice, the female chipmunk that is such a huge deal over in Japan. I mean, Drew, she's in one short, March of 1952, two chips and a miss. And it's sort of like, but, but you know, I mean, people will line up for hours because, oh my God, it's a female chipmunk. I must get my picture taken. Likewise, Shelly May. Oh yeah, people love Shelly May. You know, it doesn't Duffy also have like a cat and a dog at this point? Yeah, and there's a bird, and then there's a turtle that just debuted at Alani. Oh, my God. The you Duffy know, I, charity universe, you know. I honestly don't get this stuff. But but on the other hand, you know, I mean, you know, clearly people within the Disney company were looking at what was happening in Japan, you know, and just, it's like, oh, we got to get in on this. So have you heard about what they did at the Disneyland Paris Resort? It no. Was, they had, in the shopping village, the Disney village, they, they evidently had a restaurant that wasn't doing all that well. And so they, they created the Stitches Hawaiian Paradise Party, where, I mean, it's not just the Stitch walk around and the Angel walk around, or for that matter, you know, they had the Lilo costume. I can't even begin to think about how you drop a budget for this, but they had Captain Ganto and Jumba from the, the original movie. Right. And then they had... This series of characters only appeared in the animated series, uh, uh, Dr. Hamsterville, uh, Experiment 627, evidently the experiment after Sitch, Felix, Sparky, Sample. I mean, this in addition to, you know, they, and they've got all of their Disney friends there. So Mickey, Minnie, Goofy, Max, all of them in loud Hawaiian shirts. I mean, if you go online and, and look at Stitch's Hawaiian Paradise Party, when they do the photos of, from this, this event, it looks like there's no room in the restaurant for anybody else. There's 20 characters on stage. Yeah, oh my God. Some of these characters are 
truly the stuff of nightmares as well. I agree. It's just sort of like, hey, let me come up to your table and get a photograph. And it's like, and, you know, here's a voucher for your complimentary therapy. You know, the exact same year that this show debuts at Disneyland Paris, uh, 2011, Alani, a Disney resort and spa, opens in Oahu. And, and given that Lilo and Stitch is set in Hawaii, it's kind of a gimme thing that Alani's going to have some sort of Stitch-themed dining experience, so they end up with the Aloha party with Stitch. You would think at some point this was going to stop, but no, that we just had a a third animated series uh, that Disney Television Animation produced, which was strictly for the Chinese market. It was called Stitch and I. That debuted on, on Chinese television. It was dubbed in Mandarin and was on from March through April of 2017. And just earlier this year, that exact same show, in its original English version, uh, began Mm -hmm. airing in Southeast Asia. And this was done as sort of one last check before they officially decided to go forward with this live-action CG version of of Lilo and Stitch. Well, the other thing is that there's so much Stitch merch in the parks again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 Uh, yeah. Like, there's so much stuff in Tomorrowland. You know the Tomorrow Landing gift Mm -hmm. shop? That's all. That's an exclusively Stitch store now in Disneyland. Did you get into that when you were out there for Mickey and Minnie's Halloween thing? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was just shocked at how much Stitch merchandise there was. Because, I, like you, I thought that this would taper off at some point, but Mm -hmm. it's still gone. You did that interview with Sean Bailey, and supposedly the demarcation point for when we're going to do these movies, you know, artificial stop point of the year 2000, and of course... Lilo and Stitch doesn't come out till June of 2002, but I'd always heard another story that supposedly the first one of these, Cinderella, comes out in March of 2015. It's a surprise hit, and so immediately Disney, you know, Disney picture pivots, and, you know, so they start prepping Jungle Book, they start prepping Beauty and the Beast. Evidently, Lilo and Stitch was on the list, but one of the people who put the kibosh on this was John Lasseter. Lilo and Stitch was this huge franchise from the company. And the guy who really powered the look of Lilo Stitch, Stitch the, the, the style of storytelling, was Chris Sanders, you know, who had really had come up through the ranks at Disney. I mean, if you look at the art of animation books for Beauty and the Beast or, yep. or Mulan. Mulan, or you yeah. know, I mean, he's all over these things. And and he earned his shot, and Lilo becomes this this giant hit. And remember, this is during a period where Disney can't really get an animated hit of its own going. You know, we've got Atlantis, Treasure Planet, Home on the Range, and Brother Bear. And sticking out of, you know, the, the, the one success out of that period is is Lilo and Stitch. So, And he did that almost in secret, right? I remember people at the company who didn't even know what it was, you know, oh, yeah. six months yeah. before it came out. Yeah, when they had to do that whole ad campaign thing of showing him interacting with, you know, classic Disney characters. Right. You know, to sort of sell the idea, here's a naughty character, Disney's first naughty character. They just came across a press release from 2003 where Disney was talking about how, all right, you know, we've got two of our best filmmakers working on projects for us right now. We've got Glenn Keane, who's working on Rapunzel Unbraided, you know, a modern take on a classic fairy tale. And we've got Chris Sanders, who just produced our giant success, Lilo and Stitch, and he's working on American Dog. 
And then just a couple of years later, here comes, you know, Disney buys Pixar. That was January 2006, I want to say. And John then becomes the head of both, you know, the creative lead of both Pixar Animation Studios and Disney Disney, I want to get the name right, Walt Disney Animation Studios. The story, have you ever heard this? Supposedly, Lassiter really didn't like Lilo and Stitch. He didn't like the idea of a naughty character. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I mean, there's some other things he didn't like. We can get into that, you know, when we talk about American Dog. Well, that's, that's speaking of which, folks, that, that's just a little teaser for, for what Drew and I will be doing next month. Um, next month is the 10th anniversary of the release of Bolt, which is the movie... That American Dog eventually became. And there's some really fascinating stories about that production. And more to the point, I was just watching it the other day, and it it it, it really is a lot better than, than I remember it being. But again, we'll get to that in a, in a future show. But for now, speaking of the future, all right, so face it, we've got the live-action Lilo and Stitch. What, you figure... You know, the producer team has just been named. Is a script being written? So, realistically, what, 2020, 2021, right? Yeah, probably, yeah. Okay. But looking ahead to next year, I'm a little concerned, Drew. We got a, a number of these things coming really close back to back. I mean, for example, yeah. we, we've got Tim Burton's Dumbo. Uh, that, that bows in theaters on March 29th, 2019. Less than 60 days later, we've got the guy, Richie Aladdin, which, you know, we were just talking about the teaser trailer for this thing. Uh, That's March 24th of next year. And then again, you know, less than 60 days later, we've got Jon Favreau's The Lion King. Look, I know this past year we had Black Panther come out in the middle of February and then just a little more than 60 days later, we had Infinity Wars come out and... You know, another 60 days after that, plus we got Ant-Man and the Wasp. And in the middle there, we had Deadpool do almost three quarters of a billion dollars. So that's Marvel. And Marvel has kind of taught us that, you know, it's okay to go to a movie and when there's another one coming out. Because they all sort of connect. Whereas three of... Yeah, there's some momentum building and things interconnecting and one thing leading to another. But yeah, these are a lot of animated live-action adaptations, one after the other. You know, I'm a little concerned. I'm a little concerned about cannibalism, especially given the the Blu-ray DVD digital typically drops within 100 days, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Less than these days. I know. You know. I mean, there's only so much money in, in parents' wallets, so... And I'm sure we're going to see home video re-releases of some of these, hint, hint, uh, again <laughs> soon, so, yeah. That's that's right, we're not allowed to talk about that yet. We're not um, allowed to talk about that, but there might be some, some of these coming back out uh, on home video very soon as well. Well, speaking of things that are, are, are coming out soon, I cannot tell you how much I envy you got to do this. You got to go see Cycle. Yes. The new Disney short that... Okay, hang on. Let's jump to the break here because this is too cool to brush through. Let, let, let's do this right. So hang in there, folks. We'll be right back. And we're back. So again, Cycles is Walt Disney Animation Studios' first ever 
virtual reality animated short. Is that correct? It is correct. There have been other virtual reality shorts by other animators that that worked at Disney, like mm. Glenn Keane's thing from a couple of years ago. What was that called? Pearl? No, that was uh, oh, that was actually, Patrick Osborne. That, uh, Patrick Osborne. What was the Glenn Keane ballet one called? Do you oh, remember du- that? Duet. Duet was Duet. wonderful. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and likewise, we had John Pencava, the the director of Jerry's Game. He in fact, he's the one who did the very first Google Spotlight story, Windy Day. Uh, that was back in two thousand three. Oh no, no, uh, two thousand thirteen. Yeah, but this is the first. This is the first actual Disney virtual reality short. So yeah, it was great to to be able to see. It. I mean, I walked over to Disney Animation from mm. from Toluca Lake, and uh, they just—it's just a very innocuous-looking room. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the VR room. They had the Google headset and all the hardware that was powering it. But it was just at New York Film Festival over mm-hmm. the weekend. Yeah, that they had it as part of the convergence slate there, and yeah. Prior to that, it hadn't they showed it at SIGGRAPH up in Vancouver. Yes, it was at SIGGRAPH. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You put on the goggles and you're looking at a kind of mid-century house and uh, the director was there. And so mm-hmm. he was sort of like talking me through it. He was like, you know, look at the door. Mm-hmm. So you turn and look at the door. And that's when the story starts. And the story is basically an elderly woman and her sort of, let's say, middle-aged daughter are talking mm-hmm. about how she has to move into assisted living. Mm-hmm. And the entire short kind of revolves backwards through this house as you see all of the things that happened there with mm-hmm. the family. Mm-hmm. And it's really something. You know, you look around and the, and the character's walking right by you or you look at your feet and there's a dog there. And mm-hmm. that combined with this kind of kind of reverse time lapse mm-hmm. situation is really it's really powerful and it's beautifully designed and animated. A little different because obviously this stuff is rendering in real time. Mm-hmm. So it's not like there's one part where a baby throws up mm-hmm. and it's not like the kind of special effect vomit that you would think from a Disney animated film. But it's a little bit cruder and a little bit more geometrical, but it's because it's running, you know, it's like generating at the same time as you're looking at it, which is amazing. It's really something. This is kind of an unusual project in that, in fact, this comes from a lighting artist, right? You understand that somebody yes. who's working at Disney Studios uh, since 2013, uh, uh, Jeff Gibson, And he he worked on Frozen, Zootopia, Moana. And this is, as I understand it, based on childhood experiences going to his grandparents' house? Going to his grandparents' house and him having to move his mother in. And then the other thing that was a part of it was that he's a... BMX uh, biker. (laughs) He rides, you know, bikes that you can do tricks on. And he kind of wanders into these abandoned homes with these swimming pools because the swimming pool is a great place to do these tricks. Mm -hmm. And so he was always fascinated by these homes that had just been left, you know, to nature and Mm -hmm. what stories were in there and who lived there and all of these kind of things. This sounds amazing. But but what concerns me is that how do we get the the rest of us get to see this? I mean, you know, again. Yeah. What's interesting is that he actually at the end of the the demonstration, he took me through and this wasn't in the tape that I sent you, I don't Mm -hmm. think, but. He kind of t- there's an AR version of mm-hmm. it where okay. you look at the the poster and you can kind of see in and there's another kind of like they did do a flat version. So there's three mm-hmm. they were able to generate three different forms of content from the same thing, mm-hmm. which is really cool. But 
let's say that it was heavily implied that you might mm-hmm. be able to see this when you do the Wreck-It Ralph VR experience in a few weeks. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny you bring that up because, again, as Drew just inferred, they're at the void where right now you can do the Star Wars Secret of the Empire uh, experience. There is a, a one that's inspired by Ralph Breaks the Internet, Wreck-It Ralph 2, supposedly bowing next month called ralph breaks vr and what they're planning on pairing it with that or i would think that there might be a way where you can watch it before you go in or something because you can't see it on like um you know a home oculus rig Mm. or something like that Mm -hmm. and what also is sort of interesting is that it's not so few people can see it that they're not pushing it for the animated short this Mm -hmm. year uh the oscar so Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. there really has to be... It requires a lot of hardware that is mm-hmm. not readily available yet. You know, it's it's interesting because they kind of did it to see if they could do it and really harkens back to some of those early shorts and, and other pieces of animation that were just done as a kind of tech test. Supposedly, it's not just that they did this to see that if they could do it. It's that they did this... It, did I hear this right? They did it in four months with just a team yeah. of 50 people? Yeah, I was shocked about that because mm-hmm. you and I both know how long these things, even a short will take oh, God, a really yeah. long time. Yeah, and this kind of storytelling where you have to, I mean, the notion of putting somebody in that space and then figuring out a way to tell that. I mean, that's the thing. Friends who have done cycles, whether at Vancouver or the New York Film Festival, just talk about how oddly emotional it is, how how you just sort of get caught yeah. up in this thing and yeah. you take off the gear and it's like you're tearing up, you know, and it's just sort of like, but at the same time, it's like it's in an environment where how do you determine, how do you tell a story when it really depends on are you looking down at the, your foot at the, at the dog or are you looking at the baby or are you looking at the door and how... How did he talk at all about driving the story in that? Yeah, he said that, you know, we he he gives cues to make sure that you can see different things, Mm -hmm. you know, at the right time. But even when he was telling me this, there were things that I didn't see. He talks about one scene where the daughter climbs over a fence to kind of sneak out of the house. And I Mm -hmm. did not see that at all. But, yeah, it is interesting because the Star Wars thing at the void and other things. They mm-hmm. want you to really be there and and smell the sulfur of you know Darth Vader's castle and all this, mm-hmm. but this was really the first one that the primary goal is to elicit an emotional response, which mm-hmm. I thought was just fascinating and really impressive because, like you said, none of these people knew anything about VR. They just wanted to do it, and they he didn't even think it was going to get greenlit as VR. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's a pretty amazing accomplishment all around. More power to to Jeff and his team for trying to do this but also you know let's be completely honest here disney has in fact stuck a flag for example the void is is something that disney made a sizable investment in as part of his accelerator program and god those things are opening all over the place i mean we we had the first one that i know of opened at madame tussauds wax museum in new york city and that was back in in july of 2016 second one was in Dubai and that's lovely but you know how many of us are going to Dubai and then just over the past year I mean we had first one opens at Disney Springs and at Walt Disney World back in December of last year and Len raved about the the Star Wars Secrets of the Empires thing the Disneyland version opens in January in their downtown Disney 
Now, you got to go experience it to the Glendale Galleria when that opened in March, right? Or? No, I, w- I actually went the first weekend in Anaheim. Ah, so, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Which was crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my commemorative pin, which I'm sure you're very <laughs> jealous of. Um, well, yes, but, yes, uh, yes, I yeah. am. Yeah, and then Glendale, which is right down the street and uh, is really great i mean it's great that they're offering it to that kind of thing go to uh jc penny and then walk across to to do the void but well and see that's the thing i mean vegas you know they they opened theirs back in april at the grand canal shops there the the venetian but just last month in north texas they actually opened it there as part of the cinemark west plano theater so i mean the notion of putting it in a previously established multiplex i mean there's still that $29 price point for a $15 minute yeah. experience. Have, have you done it yet, Jim? This trip, they have just announced that a brand new one is going to be opening in Tyson's Corner. I'm going to try to hit that either coming or going up the eastern seaboard just to see what one of these things is like out in the world away from, say, a, a Disney World or a Disneyland. Yeah, I'll be very interested to hear what that experience is like. Speaking of which, by the way, of our next month, the event uh, Drew and I are doing at Walt Disney World, I'm pleased and also kind of surprised that we are literally one person away from being sold out, folks. I, I just found out from, from Tammy at Storybook Destinations that there are people actually interested in, in hanging out with us, Drew, and, and hearing... Yeah, I'm shocked. I'm really shocked. Same thing here. Drew and I are doing this November 9th through the 12th at Walt Disney World. Uh, we'll be going to... Taking a group of folks with us into the parks, and we'll be going through the history of the the various Pixar attractions that have come into the park since it's tough to be a bug. Before I forget, we have a little interesting bit of news in regard to the it's tough to be a bug the the one that just closed at disney california adventure Uh uh-huh this whole time len and i have been talking about the the spider-man attraction that you know this giant pendulum driven attraction that that they're supposedly building well it turns out that they're (laughs) maybe actually building two attractions at the same time I got reached out to by a gentleman who's working on this project I, I can't share too much information about who what where but it turns out that he was it's like mm, you can remember we closed two spaces and we're going to be doing two shows and supposedly in the space where it's tough to be a bug was located at disney california adventure they're building a ride that he said is really closer to what Toy Story Mania is. So it's kind of a ride-through shooter. Interesting. Featuring what characters? Well, this this is where a little detective work was in order. And it turns out, have you heard what they're doing with Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger spin at, at Hong Kong? Oh, yeah. They're turning it into the Ant-Man and the Wasp the, attraction. There you go. Right. And you ride, that's the ride-through shooter. Again, again, remember, this is Bob Chapek, you know, the, the new head of Disney Parks and Resorts, Interactive Media, Consumer Products, and I, I guess folding your socks. Bob's one of these guys that's like, look, I don't like duplication of effort. So we've, we're doing this attraction for Hong Kong. I want to see this travel. So the Ant-Man and the Wasp attraction had always been described as something that was coming into uh, DCA. But I had never heard that it was going to be dropped in the old Tough to Be a Bug theater area. And the other bit of news that, that we got just recently is that in a, a Disneyland resort line, 
oddly enough, in an article that was talking about the closure of, of, of Bugs Land, they mentioned that, you know, that this two-week area was being torn down to make way for a brand new superhero-themed area that would begin opening in 2020. So this is going to be here sooner than we expect, folks. So, I, And here's a bit of news that just came through my phone that you'll find very interesting. Which is? Jim, that we'll talk about in the next okay. episode. But that Variety is just breaking that Tim Story, who is just finished the new Shaft movie, mm-hmm. is going to direct a Tom and Jerry live-action animated hybrid. And that the studio has also brought on Chris Columbus as creative producer on a new Scooby-Doo animated film. Oh, my God. By the way, folks, we are still looking for help in determining what the animated live action thing that Brad Bird is doing next. So, oh yes, we still need we still still need some help there, folks. So, (laughs) that's a pretty newsy show. I'm happy with what we've done today. So, yeah, me too. Till the next time we hop on Skype here, if they're they're looking for additional info, where can they find you these days? Oh, well, you can find me. I'm the uh, features editor and social media manager at Movie Phone, so you can always go there. Uh, you can listen to my other podcast with Charles Hood called Light the Fuse. It's all about the Mission Impossible franchise. And yeah, find me on Twitter, Instagram at Drew Tailored. And uh, if there's a media event that Jim is also at, we will be sitting in a corner um, talking about things that we shouldn't be talking about. Yeah, kibitz, um, kibitz, yeah. kibitz. And okay, yeah. my side of hand is going to make sure to get all of these this time because people get ticked off if I forget things. Okay, we got... <laughs> Disney Dish with Glenn Testo. We have Marvelous Disney, the podcast I do with Aaron Adams. We have Universal Joint, the, the podcast I do with Dustin Fuse. We have Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast I do with Dan Zahair. Be aware in November, we are going to be talking about uh, American Dog and Bolt because there's a, really a lot of good stories there. But for now, that's it for myself and Drew, and thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.